Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me as ever is Italian gourmet Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, this is apropos of absolutely nothing, but I just want to ask you, because I saw <laughs> something on Twitter. It's an important literary question. Where do you stand on Nigella Lawson's Marmite pasta? Are you familiar with this? I am, but I think... I think she credits Anna del Conte as she well, does. doesn't so she? It yeah. does come from an Italian. It does, but just so people know, this I is think, a pasta dish, yeah. and it's just pasta, butter, a bit of pasta water, and a bit of pasta marmite, water, yeah. and some parmesan cheese. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would think I've never made it. I've never made it myself. Uh, there is, and Nigella Lawson says it herself. She took it from, I think it's Portrait of Pasta, which is this 1970s book that Anna del Conte did that was a big deal. Um, and she points out that there is this existing uh, Italian dish which involves after you've roasted. After you've stock, made a roast, yeah, yeah, you kind of like drag the pasta, scoop the pasta through the juices. Um, so you know, fair enough. But There's another a thing there that a there, there is, is a well, coming. you see, Anna del Conte also pointed out that quite often, I think she wrote, I think she did. She call it Britalian food, with a slight, you know, condescension because she basically said that the British had this habit of taking subtle flavours and ramping them up too much. And I would suggest yeah. that possibly That's using good. Marmite. <laughs> is the same as, you know, the the, the relation of Marmite to so nice that's, that's, that's a praise, reduction. <laughs> if more is a praise, then yeah, yes. More is always better. <laughs> uh, I, I thought of you, uh, we should get a piece on, we should get a piece on the Britalian, Britalian food. Britalian food, maybe by Nigella. Legacy of Anna del Conte. Yeah. Is she a big figure? Yeah, or massive. Mm. Yeah. I might have it. I really like the idea of Marmite and pasta, no? I don't you know my, you, you know yeah, my, my... I am familiar with your dietary... Um, my broad taste. <laughs> my, Anyway, well, we're do, not, do have it and then come back and I will, tell yeah, us exactly, I will do that. Uh, sadly, we're not doing a show based on recipes today, <laughs> but we do have some tasty stuff. Off, off. Before we start, <laughs> do us all a favour and make sure you're subscribing to the paper and the podcast and reviewers here if you can be bothered. This week, we'll be talking about another Italian of genius, Leonardo da Vinci. Keith Miller will tell us about Martin Kemp's book, Living with Leonardo, and offer theories as to why this central cultural figure remains so mysterious. He'll also probably have a mild pop at Dan Brown too. 
The crisis at the Swedish Academy, which has prevented the Nobel Prize for Literature from being awarded this year, has still not abated amid charges of serious sexual misconduct and cronyism. Richard Orange has delved deeply into the mess for us. And just the other night, the surprise winner of the Man Booker Prize was announced, Milkman by Anna Burns. The TLS in the form of Harriet Baker just last week thankfully praised it. Toby Lishtig, our fiction editor, will emerge from paternity leave to speak to the winning author. Leonardo da Vinci embodies perhaps more than any other the ideal of the Renaissance or universal man, defined as a man who can do all things if he will. His name is all but synonymous with the words genius and polymath. He's remembered as a sculptor, an architect, a scientist, musician, an engineer, an inventor, a geologist, a botanist and a cartographer. And the list goes on. He is most famous, though, for his paintings, and most people will be able to list a few. Authenticity is often hotly disputed, but of those universally acknowledged as Da Vinci's are, of course, The Last Supper and The Mona Lisa, two of the most reproduced works of all time. There are sketches, too, of wondrously weird, and we'll come back to that word, machines for flying, for killing, or, more modest but no less important, for adjusting the flow of water just so. And then there are the many close anatomical studies of the human body, of which his Vitruvian man is only the best known. Now, we're not here to dispute Leonardo da Vinci's genius, so everyone can breathe breathe a sigh of relief. Nor are we here to quarrel with the art historian Martin Kemp, one of the world's greatest authorities on on da Vinci, and whose memoir, Living with Leonardo, we review in this week's TLS. Rather, I think, we're here to discuss and to address a few blind spots and add a little nuance in the way that we tend to view da Vinci's legacy. So Keith Miller is here to tell us more. Um, Welcome, Keith. Hello. I wonder if it would be helpful to start with some kind of broad brushstroke portraiture of of da Vinci, because I grew up on the outskirts of Milan, so his dates are more or less sort of singed into my mind, 1452 to 1519. Is he he sort of Shakespeare to this, Harriet? Uh, well, yes, in a sense. I mean, any 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 subject that you do in, in primary school will touch on Leonardo because obviously he did everything. <laughs> so, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I grew up on the outskirts of Milan, so there were countless school trips to the Da Vinci Museum, to the church, to see the Last Supper, you know, on and on and on. So, yeah, Keith, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he's, you know, he is an undeniably huge figure in all the ways you specified, but uh, he's a huge figure who's also consistently been uh, enigmatic, and there's a bit of a sort of void at the middle of it because, in fact, there, you know, there aren't that many paintings. I mean, he's best known as a painter, but the paintings are not necessarily in very good physical condition because he played around with different uh, materials and different techniques. The Last Supper that you described was was a physical ruin almost as soon as he'd finished painting it, really. And, and there's been a kind of very complicated historical process of different iterations with the restoration of that, and the most recent of which is quite a kind of drastic attempt to take everything off the wall that isn't by... Leonardo, and when you do that, you're left with very little on the wall, uh, and that's actually quite a good sort of metaphor for, for, the, for the artist himself, because there's all this stuff, um, but it's oddly, and it's very systematic, and it's very wide-ranging because of all the an- anatomical studies and looking at weather, um, but uh, it's quite disparate, and it's quite hard to form into a kind of coherent personality. But why is he adding that? Is that because is there almost too much? Is that what you're saying? Or It's because he's 
primarily known, I suppose you come to him thinking of him as a painter, and, and for a big chunk of his career, that's probably not how he thought of himself. There is this letter that I mentioned in my piece about Professor Kemp's book that advertises his skills as a guy who can make siege engines and, um, you know, canals. There's a sort of hipster yeah. bit of Milan with, with, with the a navili, yeah. um, and, and those are attributed to, to Leonardo. Yeah. I often think that they're his kind of yeah. great legacy, really. And that was, that was a letter that he wrote to, he wrote to um, Ludovico Il, Il Moro, who was, who was one of the Sforza family, and he was sort of advertising. He wanted to get out of Florence, basically. Yeah. I think he'd, he'd got into a bit of trouble because of his go- goings-on with, with men and well, and then there were these the strange other... unaccounted years yeah. and the story that I had anyway was that he, he was sort of sent to Milan as an envoy um, from Florence and he wrote this letter sort of advertising kind of his, his yeah exactly and the, I and the whole idea of a things. court artist was quite a new one at, the, at this point there's a sort of way that you can kind of make a sort of a living at the grace and favour of, of these new kind of princelings who are, who are kind of springing up in, in Italy in the second half of the 15th century uh, and Leonardo was clearly a very brilliant courtier. I mean, Vasari, the, the first sort of biographical account of him as, as a great genius of the Renaissance, before he talks about how good he was at painting or anything like that, he talks about how kind of graceful and charming and beautiful he was as a person. And so his accomplishments are kind of inseparable from this kind of personal charisma, his musicality, he could improvise on the lute and sort of make up verses and all can't, that kind of stuff. We so, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, th- but yeah. that Vasari thing, we've got another piece in the paper by Jonathan Keats, yes, which, uh, yeah, which, proof, yeah. which he says, even Vasari, m- the most famous biographer of, of painters, didn't really get Leonardo either. Yeah. And he was writing relatively soon after after Leonardo. So, and, he, and even he couldn't pin him down. Is it sort of accepted that he's, he's an impossible guy to I think to there's get? a whole... I mean, for me, the most interesting piece of writing about Leonardo that I've ever read, and I'm ashamed to say I didn't read it in the run-up to... to writing the piece earlier this year, but in fact I, I read it earlier this week, is by Freud. Mm. And Freud, Freud's sort of essay about Leonardo is, is based, it's a classic Freud thinks it's based on a mistake. He got the translation <laughs> wrong of, of, of a word. He thought that Leonardo was talking about a vulture and the vulture is a hieroglyph that's associated with motherhood. So he has this whole thing about Leonardo's illegitimacy and his relationship with his birth mother and his, as it were, adoptive mother, his father's uh, wife. Um, and in fact, Leonardo saw a kite um, rather than... So it was a different bird, nothing to do with vultures, nothing to do with motherhood. But he does um, sort of centre on it. You know, at the beginning of, of, of this very interesting, very partly kind of specious essay, he talks about Leonardo's pathological inability to finish things mm. or to make things in a way that was going to last. And how a lot of... I think a lot of creative people feel like that. Is it, and in a lot of ways, I think Leonardo sort of looks... We, we see him slightly through the filter of romanticism. Mm. And, and a, a, somebody he reminds me of is Dr Frankenstein. He makes these creations and is immediately yeah. sort of disgusted by them somehow. And that revulsion invites, if you're Freud or if you're a sort of 20th century person, that invites a kind of psychosexual explanation. And, and, and that's another thing we don't know. We don't know how gay Leonardo was. We, we know that he was denounced for homosexuality in the 1470s, but you know, practice, not everyone, but um, it, was like, it was like the kind of dodgy parking yeah. meters. You know, there, <laughs> yeah. there, there were people kind of issuing sort of fines for homosexuality in the hope, for sodomy, as it was, it was, it was uh, uh, bluntly caused, in the hope that they could just sort of enrich the, the city's coffers a bit. So um, that doesn't necessarily mean that his sexuality was a, a, a kind of some, something that made him a, a refugee or made mm. him lead, lead this kind of an encrypted life. Um, it's often assumed that the climate was a bit more sort of relaxed in Milan mm. and probably it was more relaxed in a kind of court culture than 
a sort of republican culture. But then, you know, um, Florence was, or elsewhere in Italy, Florence was known as a sort of byword, as, as, as a place where, where kind of gay men could live Absolutely. more freely, yeah. ex- except they were at risk of being denounced by the, by the government. So, so part of all of these, yeah, all of these these gaps in, in the biography that obviously helped Giorgio Vasari write his his life and, and kind of maintain that enig- enigmaticness, the kind of the start of mythologizing that has then been kind of continued down the years. So then you get to like Walter Pater, mm. and he kind of he was the one who sort of, I think he used the the term strange soul, and yeah. that's where we start to get this very clear idea of a weirdness. Yeah. In in yeah. Da Vinci's work, can you talk a bit about that weirdness? How does it manifest in in the painting itself, or, or is it something beyond that? Well, this is a sort of—I I mean, I don't want to be too um, too sort of heuristic or too um, kind of wobbly here, really. But it's just something. <laughs> there's nothing wrong know, with wobbly heurism in this uh, <laughs> in this podcast. It's fine, you know, because there's a there's a mixture of factors, some of which Leonardo was not personally involved with, and, and one of them is is because his pictures are the surviving pictures are very complicated physical objects in terms of the materials used. They've had quite complicated kind of post-Leonardo careers of restoration and being scraped back. So you end up with this very distinctive kind of fuzzy treatment of of colour and tone. Uh, And it's very, uh, and like if you look at his earlier stuff, uh, it's legible as this marvellously lifelike treatment of flesh. So he's one of the sort of not many artists who were quite good at babies in, in, in the sort of 1460s and 1470s. By the time you get to when he's post-Milan, turn of the 16th century, um, there are these extraordinary um, people. His faces, the faces are kind of slipping off the skulls somehow because he's not doing the disegno, the, the, the kind mm. of the drawing the light and shade as rigidly as he might, or he was, and, and that's been lost over time. This is something you know I, don't, I personally um, have no idea about, really. Um, so the overall effect is like looking at a sort of Puby de Chavan or a sort of 19th century, a picture that's intending to have a kind of dreamlike quality, and, and that may or may not be something that Leonardo intended or that was visible at the time. But by the time you get to people like Walter Pater, it slots very easily into a slightly sort of decadent mm. uh, reading, you know. Does that connect into the idea that the other thing that people associate with him is this sort of conspiracy theories and the occult, which yes. doesn't appear to be true in in which case, you end with Dan Brown writing yeah. the Da Vinci Code, yeah. which is that you know he's written the Last Supper to prove it that um, Jesus was a what is it Jesus was a woman or Jesus was having a relationship with Mary Magdalene? Yeah, it's the sort of holy blood yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Why does he attract? He attracts cranks and occultists. Why is that? Is that because he was there? Was it's because we don't know enough, so we fill it up with a conspiracy, or was there a nod and a wink there? As it's well? A, well, there's a specific thing. I mean, there's a Dan Brown doesn't invent the association of of Leonardo da Vinci with, with a kind of you know order of hermetic or heretical or whatever they are. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea of a sort of secret community of artists down the ages who are who are safeguarding a, a, a treasure that's never um, that that's kind of um, that's in this also terrible book, but it's not purporting to be a work about the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. I can't, I can't actually remember whether Leonard is in that, but, but he's been one of the people, along with Poussin. There's a, there's a, people go on about Poussin being part of this. Because at the, start of, at the start of the book, and I haven't read the book. We both have sorry. the book, but neither of us look like we can remember it very well. So. <laughs> yeah. But at the start of the book, so it My opens with a, with a man who's been murdered in the Louvre. Is it in the Louvre? Yes, or the Uffizi? Yeah. By an albino. You read page one, it's <laughs> half a page, and you think, dear God, don't let the assassin be an and, albino. And, you turn the page, and the, the assassin's victim, an albino. The victim, the victim is sort of splayed in a Vitruvian style. Yes. Yeah, but With then, a Vitruvian man. This is one of the great sort of memes of Western culture. This is this is Leonardo's drawing mm. of a well-proportioned male mm. body, which 
according to Vitruvius Pollo, the architectural um, writer from the late first century BC, a well-proportioned adult male can fit into a square and a circle. Now that's a useful thing for measuring buildings. It's also, if you're a kind of um, intellectually curious but essentially, as it were, correct Catholic in, in the Renaissance, that's evidence of, of kind of God being a good good architect, if you like. That's evidence of order in nature. It's not a particularly kind of cultish or mm. um, uh, heterodox no, thing. It's actually about rationality and, and, and sort of evidence for kind of, you know, divine design and so purpose what, So why is he noticed with a kind of Freemason-y wonkishness that's, that, there's, that there are hidden meanings in that? Is it because... Like you say, the last time, he's not been well treated by restorers virtually ever, so yeah. there's a lot of mystery attached to the yeah. painting. I think there are a lot of gaps. I think he's a big figure, and there are a lot of gaps in however you present narratives about him. There are, there are gaps in them, and that, and that invites people mm. to fill them imaginatively, I guess. Okay, well, um, into this, before we run out of time, we need to introduce Martin Kemp. Exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> we haven't got there yet. So he is this, a scholar of great repute, who is beyond all shadow of doubt, helped shape our understanding of Da Vinci. Uh, Living with Leonardo is it's primarily a memoir. It's kind of career summing yeah, up. Yeah, it's a sort of professional memoir, largely. There, there are a few very endearing little touches of his personal life. He, um, somebody made his son, I think, a, a sort of baby walker from a design by Leonardo. So there's a picture of the son in this sort of... <laughs> oh, there's a propeller really? over it. Yeah. <laughs> well, he also did, uh, Kemp also, and this, 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 this puts kind of dodgy attributions in, into the shade. He designed, or he, he, he kind of gave realisable... Um, designs based on Leonardo's parachute. You might have seen that there's a sort of funny pyramid-shaped parachute that Leonardo did, did a drawing for. And some guy went and jumped out of an aeroplane with this thing. And he had a real parachute as well. And at some point, he, he took off his Leonardo parachute. Oh, and it and, No, it worked, it worked better than a normal parachute. So the other, the other people he was jumping with had to brake. They had to keep sort of pulling the brake on there because Leonardo's parachute was working so well. So uh, I think, you know, <laughs> there are sort of kind of quirky touches of, of humanity but essentially it's an account of a professional engagement it's an intellectual awakening where I think um, you know Kemp began studying natural sciences uh, so he doesn't come from a humanities background and he brings that remorseless desire for objectivity and and a kind of systematic investigation to if you like the sort of scientific side of Leonardo which you know setting aside all, all the more, slightly more wacky stuff um, Leonardo clearly was um, somebody of what we could legitimately call a very scientific state of mind. He, he, you know, he made experiments. He studied nature with forensic accuracy, and he, he tabulated what he learnt in a very idiosyncratic way because there wasn't really a, a discourse. He wasn't sort of publishing scientific findings about the weather or about minerals or whatever. But 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 he was amassing this kind of compendium of very clearly organised knowledge about all sorts of different things and Kemp really responds to that he responds to the kind of the, the quest for knowledge where does the insanity come in because the, the subtitle is 50 years of sanity and insanity in the art world and beyond well I think it's partly because you put your sort of head above the parapet a bit uh, but both in the you know Leonardo has become a very expensive artist so so um, questions of attribution have an awful lot hanging on them 
uh, financially, reputationally, whatever. Like the most expensive um, painting. Uh, like yeah. the Salvatore Mundi, Mundi in Abu Dhabi. Um, 450 and, million US dollars. And that's a lot of, that's back when 450 <laughs> million dollars was a lot of money. Yeah. And um, also, but it, also the Dan Brown people, you know, he gets regularly contacted by, by people saying, obviously Leonardo was a hermaphrodite. <laughs> um, that Salvatore Mundi, I read a thing that's not being displayed. So, there, so the, it's, it's, Again, it's all very <laughs> mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. They've got it. It was going to be displayed in the Louvre in Abu Dhabi. In Abu Dhabi. And it's now it's not going to be at the moment. Yes, I don't know anything about that. I, um, well, they're, they're I, don't, saying I don't want one, us to get sued. Yeah, one, yeah, yeah. Don't get one, sued. Don't get sued. St- I don't think we'll get sued. Okay. One state-linked newspaper said that there was a chance that they were holding on to it because they've got the big anniversary of the of the museum's opening. That's coming on the 11th yeah. of November. So, But the point I mean, is, dot, these, dot, are, dot. these are fantastically expensive yeah. and attribution is not easy. And It's really not. And, why and, is it not easy? Because at one level, <coughs> he's one of the most famous artists of all time. Is it because the manner of his painting, the way it's been restored, there's no obvious Leonardo touch? Is there? What, what, what? Well, I, you know, I, I, what do I know? I, you know, I, I've got two two and <laughs> from 1988. And, um, but um, Don't I, do I think there is. I, th- I think I can look at a picture and, and confidently think yes, maybe no. Um, a lot of these pictures dwell in the realm of maybe, and, and you know, the stylistic touches are very easy to copy it turns out and, and the tradition there's a sort of rather genteel tradition of, of attribution by um by connoisseurs yeah. people who know what you know leonardo would never do this sort of earlobe and, yeah. and um you know kemp includes very specific aspects of that morellian connoisseurship in, in his analysis of pictures but he's also looking across he's looking at a lot of kind of you know, spectrograms and analysis of pigments and analysis of supports. And, and, and uh, basically you can date the materials in a picture fairly accurately. But that doesn't mean they were put together then. That, you know, they could have been put together. Yeah. You know, there's a very in- endearing sort of counterfactual about the Bella Principessa, which is another of these controversial attributions, um, where there, there, was a, there was a kind of forger who, who claimed that he'd done it himself and he'd based it on, on somebody he saw working in the co-op in Bolton. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is, you know, that's right. I, mean, I, I think all of those little sort of counterfactuals m- make the stories more interesting in a way. But if if there are hundreds of millions of quid riding on something, then you it's probably hard to see the funny side. Yeah, you, know? you want a bit more than a maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think we we'll have to leave it there. I could talk about this very. I mean, what, we've, we've barely touched the surface of. Uh, we should do a whole podcast on Leonardo. Maybe. Well, I mean, it's al- almost become that. I don't know how many minutes we've been talking for. <laughs> yeah. So that you're an expert as well. <laughs> I'm really not. We've got a world expert, Keith Miller. <laughs> a world expert, Thea Leonard. I have seen the flying machines. I have seen the flying machines with my own eyes. Your own. Uh, there we go. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. We should do we should do more on. on we should all we should go on a school trip to the trip. to the to the museum in, in Milan where you can see these prototypes that are put together of the flying machines yeah, and, yeah. and everything. It's incredible. And I think I think there was also a point at which um, Da Vinci was asked, or maybe he did it as some kind of grand gesture for a royal figure. I can't remember where he was asked to design a lion that was kind of mechanised and yeah, sort of for walked of for the King of France that was it so he was supposed to be able to walk forward and then his chest was to open and produce a bunch of lilies L- the lilies fell out there yeah. you go yeah, and he made a little one <laughs> there's a little one in, in uh, Amboise or one of the one of the Loire houses that are associated yeah. with well, this little circle, which which he's supposed to have done. For well, I'm gonna have to physically, st- we'll have to physically <laughs> stop talking now. That's it. That's more. We will come back to this subject, Keith Miller. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Very much. Selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's talk about the winner of the Man Booker Prize announced just the other day. It went to Anna Burns for her novel Milkman. It's set in the troubles of the 1970s, knife-edged times, primal times, with everybody suspicious of everybody, in the words of the book, which tells the tale of an 18-year-old girl being pursued by a man in the IRA. Harriet Baker last week in the TLS called it dark, but also very funny. Its prose, she said, builds with pressure, swaying with concealed turbulence. It's tiring, exhausting, even as it circles and plies, settling on nothing. This is Anna Burns' third novel. Her first No Bones back in 2001 also covered the troubles. She's the first Northern Irish novelist to win the Booker, which is kind of extraordinary. Toby Lishtig, our fiction editor, spoke to her earlier about the win. There is a great deal of universality to this book, obviously, but it is also clearly partly about the Troubles and set, set in some way during the Troubles in, in, in a particular time and place. And I just wondered, do you think we're in danger in England, you've lived in England for quite a long time, I believe, of losing sight of the Troubles and how important is it? I mean, I guess as an author, you just want to write about what you want to write about without thinking too much about the kind of political motives. But how important do you think it is? for us to keep keep sight of the troubles and what role can literature play in that? I mean, I've lived here over 30 years and I'm not sure how many people do keep sight of the troubles. It's like, you know, I've met so many people who they've heard of the IRA but they haven't heard of anything else, you know, any other organisation. I was struck by our Northern Ireland, current Northern Ireland Secretary Karen Bradley earlier this year saying that she was quite surprised to learn that people on the unionist side tend to vote for unionist parties and people on the Republican side tend to vote for Republican parties. Showing, I don't know if you came across that quote, but it's extraordinary ignorance. And I actually, I sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek said that this this book is required reading for her as, as well as lots of other people. But but yes, I mean, I, I would agree with that. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I wonder whether, do, do you think novels can be some some sort of 
kid way to educate people about well there, there is one thing like when i lived in northern ireland i um i couldn't cope i mean my way of coping with living there was to just not look at a lot of things i mean i would intellectually know something had happened somebody had been killed and neither gone but i couldn't emotionally link to that and have and process it and grieve and all that so I would just have the oh yes that happened and then that's gone from my mind the next thing happens and it was only when I came to live here and became aware of this disconnection between thoughts and feelings and I mean it took a long time and the only the way it started to come back and it it was unconscious I didn't you know I must do this this and this it was I started reading about books about Northern Ireland not not literature and I'd read things that I remember happening and I'd get this huge, something that might be a lot of terror, or a lot of fear, or a lot of grief, which I didn't get then. So basically I was starting to integrate my thoughts with my feelings and my past to get my own felt reality off the time. And you presumably required some distance, both psychological and, and geographical, <laughs> and time. Absolutely. So I can see there came a, a ripeness of the moment for me for that to happen. And maybe unconsciously that was what was pushing me to move away. So I can see saying, you know, someone like an MP, they need to read this. I think if they're not at that moment of ripeness, they won't, they won't you know, could, something could go off in front of their face and, you know, they wouldn't notice it. So you don't, you don't think sort of 20, 30 years ago, people in this country, in England, were, were more keyed into what was going on otherwise, other than in reacting to the latest yes. IRA bomb that maybe reacting. may have gone off? Yes, yes, reacting I sort of felt it was almost like you weren't allowed to talk about it. You know, it was there seemed to be an anger here. I mean, not that I wanted to because I was still doing my own blocking number, but there seemed to be not even an anger. It was almost like a an irritation, right? If you talked about anything to do with the troubles, right. and I still can pick that up. It's almost like people might listen politely. I don't mean everybody because there are some amazing, wonderful people, but I've, there's a kind of wave of this I pick up I, I picked it up a lot when I came it was just don't even talk about it um, or mention anything I presume you've never run up against that in, in your own writing in terms of sending writing to agents and editors and things like that presumably is this more generally or, or, or do you mean in terms of the things that you've been writing about for years no no it's more just coming here to live yeah. I mean I think I've only met one agent who said she wouldn't deal with any literature to do with the IRA. I thought, hey, bizarre. I mean, what, what does that mean? That is even? extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Um, and I wasn't sending it to her. I met her at a party and we were talking and she heard my accent and she just made this remark and I thought I didn't invite the remark, but I, I just noted that, okay, I don't know what, what sort of experiences she might have had that's, you know, but it's almost like, again, I find it bizarre for her to say it to me. There's been a bit of a change so I mean, more of a receptivity to hearing about it then? or a, a little bit. I mean, every time I meet someone who knows I write, I don't. I mean, someone I haven't seen in a while, they'll say, are you still writing about Ireland? You know, they don't say, you know, what are you writing or, you know, what's your book? It's all used to, as if, and there's this little almost criticism, haven't you moved on by that? By, haven't you progressed to some proper writing? There is this, sometimes they even say it, you have to get on with your life or... Um, you can't bring the past back. Or is there perhaps as well a protectiveness about, about about Northern Irish culture that, you know, maybe you're seen as a threat in some way? I don't know. It could be. I mean, I, I don't know. It could be. But, I mean, I would say, well, this is how I get on with my life. I mean, it was. I started reading about books first and then I started to write. So I kind of made sense of Northern Ireland for me through my writing. But I had to kind of do all this other stuff first of, you know, separating my thoughts and feelings then trying to integrate them through the reading a bit and then it was actually when I started writing 
that's when it really started to really connect in and I sort of started to feel more about my experience. I mean, I think it was a hugely immense historical violent time that demands to be written about. This irritation, I still come across, if not, not all the time, but I still come across it in individuals or what you write about. And it's almost like sometimes if I say Northern Ireland, if I don't want to talk about my writing very much, I might just say Northern Ireland and then they'll sort of switch off. It's a way of getting people to... <laughs> <laughs> um, I can sort of tell when I've met that type of person and then other people might want to engage. I mean, it's a rich landscape as well to, to have as a fictional location. Anna Burns and Toby Lishtig there. I don't know about you, but with one thing and another, I hadn't thought much about the process behind the award of the Nobel Prize for Literature. It emerged from Sweden once a year and was either understandable or baffling. Nabokov, one of the greatest ever fiction writers in two languages, never won it. Bob Dylan, who wrote folk songs, did. The award seemed arbitrary but harmless and good fodder for literary debate. What emerged in November 2017 was shocking and serious. Claims were made that Jean-Claude Arnaud, the husband of one of the 18 Academy members who award the prize, had been the perpetrator of serious sexual assault, with the allegation that his close ties to the Academy shielded him. Arnaud has been subsequently convicted of rape. Meanwhile, the handling of the crisis plunged the Academy into turmoil. Arno's wife, Katerina Frostenson, was also accused of having leaked the names of winners to her husband. She's never accepted this allegation. Horace Engdahl, an Academy member and associate of Arno, was accused of trying to protect Frostenson. He fell out with Sarah Danius, the first female permanent secretary of the Academy, who was pushed out from that role. Four members stood down in protest and the prize lacked a quorum. So there was no Nobel for Literature this year. Have you got all that? Richard Orange has written about this mess, this fascinating literary and more serious mess, and he's here to explain more. Hello, Richard. Hello. Right, should we try and go through this crisis in, crisis in some detail? Where did it start? Um, I think I think it it, it it started with the newspaper article that was published in Dargan's New Hatter newspaper, sort of at the tail end of, of, of the, the, the sort of series of articles across the world that came out um, following uh, as part of the Me Too campaign. And the article had the testimony of 18 women, all of whom independently accused Arno of either sexually harassing them or in some cases even raping them. And... This, I think, what made the article so significant is that it was extremely thoroughly reported. And the, the writer, Matilda Gustafsson, put it in context and showed how Arno allegedly uses links to the Academy to shield himself and prevent women reporting him or, or, or so taking it So he was, a, he was a big figure um, connected to the, to the Academy and the idea was that he was, some, he was considered to be untouchable. These, some of these claims yeah. were then... Uh, obviously the legal process followed uh, and I think all but one of them um, fell away uh, because of either statute of limitations or because uh, of um, insufficient insufficient supporting evidence evidence. Uh, and he but he was convicted of rape and sentenced to two years in prison so this did lead to a conviction of Arno but not on all 18 counts yeah, absolutely. And, and, and he's, he's appealed that, that conviction. And the prosecutor has also appealed the conviction because she thinks he should be done for two, two of the rapes that he did instead of the one. Uh, this is a guy who's attached to the 
Academy, but not in the Academy himself. His wife is Katerina Frostenson. Why is this a crisis for the Academy if Arno's behaviour was uh, was what it was? Where does the Academy fit in? Where does his wife particularly fit in? I think it's almost more than his wife. It's, it's this um, cultural venue called Forum, which is this sort of grubby underground cellar, which he ran uh, and it hosted all if you look at the list of the people who've hosted events and hosted talks at forum it pretty much covers everyone in the academy almost i mean all of the stockholm members of the academy and it was referred to as sort of the academy's living room it was it was where if you wanted to meet people in the academy if you wanted to network for one of the huge list of grants and prizes that it gave out i mean the nobel prize is just one of dozens and um, that's where you went so that he ran this gave him an an enormous influence sort of a sort of hidden influence in Stockholm's cultural scene. So so Frostenson is his his wife and there also is an allegation which we she has not admitted or, or accepted that she was leaking news of the Nobel winners to Arno in advance of the prize being announced. Absolutely. So what happened was, is is after this story came out, the Academy sort of went into panic mode and said, we've got to find out everything, everything that links us to Arno. So they hired a law firm to sort of go to interview everyone and go through it with a fine tooth comb. And that law firm then came up with these further allegations that um, the, the forum the, the forum didn't account properly for the money it got from the academy that she hadn't told the academy that she was a part owner and also that she had that through him she had leaked um the the, the winner of seven i think um nobel prizes and so so that then became how the the, the grounds that the academy used to try and push her out and after this the academy went into sort of action stations and and uh, sarah danius um made a statement absolutely so so um and i think everyone agrees that after this after this article came out the academy met the very next day and i think that you know dog and had to time the article for that reason they sort of had they put this out the day before the members met so that they were getting a sort of immediate reaction and and they met and in that meeting um a whole lot of other stories came up because all of the academy members know or know, and amongst that was that he had allegedly harassed the daughter of one of the members. He had harassed the wives of some of the members. And so after that, she made a statement in which she said this, which then took the crisis up to a whole other level. So she, she, she gives a statement that makes clear there's all sorts of bad behaviour going on. It's time to introduce another figure. We're almost through all the significant players in this. Horace Engdahl, who's an Academy member himself and seen as very much the person who pulls a lot of the strings for the Academy. So he was supportive mm. of uh, Danius to begin with, but, but then eventually they, didn't, they fell out as well, didn't they? Yeah, so he was initially, he was a, uh, in, in November, he was supportive of Danius uh, and the actions that that the academy took to distance themselves from Arno, but he's also knows Arno extremely well himself and had praised him in the past, saying you know he should be a model for young men in Stockholm. He's the only man who knows how to live the good life, and so he had a close-ish links to Arno himself. And in January, the ne- after the Christmas break, he then, according to people I've spoken to within the academy, started very 
determinedly working to sort of pull back from what had happened before to sort of to limit the the impact on Frostenson particularly and also to an extent Arno because he tried to close down this um, law firm's investigation. So uh, the central feature of your piece here is your conversations with Engdahl. Tell us about it, because he's an interesting character. He started out as a a sort of str- slightly punkish sort of rebel, and then by the time this has all happened, he's a, he's, he's a, a figure of the establishment now, isn't he? Extremely, yeah. And, and he he's a fascinating character, I think, because of he sort of positions himself against Swedishness to an extent because he's 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 elitist he's into you know the finest literature and the finest culture and he's against the sort of middle brow elements to Swedish culture where anything sort of you know reading Proust would be trying to be better than above above your station trying to be better than you are so he's a sort of he's fighting against the sort of the main stream and current of 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 Swedish culture and I think that makes him interesting in many ways, Sweden is the most gender equal country in the world. And he, he, he questions that. And despite having been married to one of Sweden's main feminists. So I think he's, the, the way, he, the way he, he's positioned in Sweden makes him interesting already. You mentioned there his, his ex-wife, um, who is a feminist professor of literature, Ebba uh, Witt-Brandstrom. Uh, perhaps now's the moment to tell us about her. Yeah, I mean, she's another fascinating character. Um, she is extremely smart and and a real operator and she she as well as being uh, in the public eye pretty much constantly for 30 years she's also she founded she co-founded feminist initiative which is sweden's feminist political party um but then she fell out with then she got but she, she she's she's a she's a real character in 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 feminist circles and also literary circles in sweden and that she was married to this extremely male sort of Donish figure is 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 fascinating to me. Um, and, 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 and Engdahl's written a book called The Last Pig. I mean, I mean which sounds about as anti-feminist as one might imagine. And what does it say? Things like things like complete penetration is always a humiliation for the woman and always a victory for the man. His, exactly. His, yeah. his feminist ex-wife can't have liked that. Well, and she, doesn't she claim that basically that that has filtered through into an aesthetic that has come to dominate? Uh, the work of the academy yeah exactly sort of mon- months after their marriage ended she came out with a book sort of that reappraised pretty much everything that Horace Engdahl and his friends had done as a sort of chauvinist counter-reaction to the feminism of this of the 70s so uh so so it's 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 amazing how their divorce sort of then becomes um filters into everything else and colors their approach to each other so yeah. this is a culture war. I mean, this, this is where it becomes interesting as well in terms of the Nobel Academy, because one of Whit Brandstrom's points is that people who've won the Nobel Prize um, get it because they have a certain politics, which is a kind of anti-feminist politics. So her contention is that the Academy itself allowed male chauvinism to develop, which becomes relevant when there's a, a, a scandal involving uh, the behaviour of someone close to the academy. This is sort of saying that there is a link between literary politics and real-world sexual politics. Absolutely, that that's the argument she makes. I think it's I think I think it's it's quite easy to challenge that argument if you look at the number of women who have won the Nobel Prize and who they are. But what she argues is that if you look at you know why didn't Margaret Atwood win the Nobel Prize? She would argue, but I. Um, and there's because, the there's the Austrian one who did win it, who she feels is a good example of 
a kind of internalised male chauvinism. Um, who's the one who went in 2000? And... Jelinek. Yeah, Jelinek. Jelinek. Yeah, who, 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 and that caused a shock. That caused a, um, a scandal at the time because what she writes is, is so sort of, it's described as, as pornographic and, yeah, and, and, and involves a lot of violence. Um, Subjugation. Yeah, it, it, she argues that. Uh, I, th- and I think it's, it's perhaps does a disservice to the women who are on the academy to, to say you're all sort of anti, um, black feminists, as she calls them. But that's the argument she makes. Well, so how, where is the academy up to now? Because they've been incredibly split in, in terms of the way now they're responding to uh, both Engdahl's continued presence uh, and Sarah Danius and uh, Frostenson. They've all been, uh, you know, some people have been saying, well, I'll resign if he resigns or she resigns and I'll resign. And, you know, it's all very confusing. So where are we, where are we up to now? Um, right now, it looks very, very like they're slowly going to replace the members who left either in protest or for other reasons, and it's going to slowly be sorted out and gradually, gradually heal itself and go back to normal, which was what Horace Engdahl was predicting back in June. But at that time, it looked like there's no way they would get out of this. But it seems like uh, they're going to manage to square things with the but, Nobel Foundation who oversee the prize. And, um, but Frostenson, and, and but, but no one can be compelled to leave. One of the striking things that comes out of your piece is you can't be forced to leave. So the Academy has requested that Frostenson, Katerina Frostenson, leaves, but there appears to be no mechanism to, to enforce that. Is that right? I think there is. I think it is possible uh, for the Academy to exclude people and to... To, to push them out. But what Horace Engdahl argued is that this has happened only once in 230 years, and that person was sentenced to death for plotting against the king. So it's, you have to do, you have to do some, you have to be pretty bad to get excluded. And he argued that Frost, what Frostenson had done didn't come close, and what he has done doesn't come, didn't come close. He, he's, uh, and, he's oddly sticking up for it. Is there an argument that he's almost making a feminist argument in support of Frostenson, who he would say, uh, the behaviour of Arno is the behaviour of Arno. Frostenson is the greatest writer in the Academy. He says she's the only one who'll be remembered in, in 50 years' time. And is he almost making the position that she shouldn't be forced out because um, in that way, in some ways, she'd be paying for her husband's sins? That's exactly the argument he's making. He, 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 he says he sees her as a victim and sees himself as defending um, someone who's unfairly being treated as a scapegoat and that he's the only one with a cool enough head to realise this. And I think that's an argument that has been, I think he's justified in saying, has been strangely absent from the Swedish media, is the fact that what they're calling for is for a woman to be punished for something her husband is alleged to have done. And it's also important to note that of the members of the Academy, a majority of the women supported Frostenson and the three who left when... It was they voted not to push her out were were three men. So it, I think it's 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 quite hard to support the depiction of what's happened at the academy as a gender war. But there is a, it's, it's clearly a culture war at some level, though, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, one member said that the, 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 the real split is between people who are part of the Stockholm scene, members who are part of this interlocking web of friendships and and perhaps patronage as well. And those who on the academy who are from Skåne, who are from the south of Sweden or from other places are the ones who said, no, actually, this behaviour is unacceptable and she should be 
punished because they, they don't have a personal friendship to Catherine Frostenson. You say that the Nobel Foundation is going to repair its relationship. Do you think the prize is damaged, though, in terms of its prestige? It's about to be the, the, the final point, but I'm interested in that, that so many people, I suspect, like me, didn't think about the process. Now that process has been really strongly pushed into their face. It looks very parochial, very filled with Swedish inner fighting. It's got a horrible scandal of rape attached to it, even so. Is this damaged as an international prize, do you think? I think absolutely. that's what the Nobel Foundation is, is, is worried about. And that's why they've acted to say, look, you need to. That's why they suspended the prize and said, you need to get your house in order. And I think they're right. I think that um, the, 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 connect, the, 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 the taint of this, this, these, this, these sexual assault allegations and also, like you say, the parochialism of it, the fact that it turns out that there's this tiny, small group of people in Stockholm who who know each other really well and sort of help each other onto the academy they're the ones deciding the prize that that is the the, the measure of literature across the world and and I don't know how much that's got through to people internationally I don't know how much people have picked up this sort of what a small group of people are are make this judgment but um, I, I don't think it helps the prize at all um, Richard Orange thank you very much indeed that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Toby and Anna Burns, to Keith Miller and to Richard Orange. Do grab a copy of the TLS or subscribe to it. This week is an art history special with some beautiful pieces on Bruegel, female surrealists and the art of plating up food. Next week, who knows what we'll bring you, but it might well include sex toys in the 19th century. A piece commissioned by you, Thea. Hello. <laughs> There's a tease for you. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.